This afternoon, I preach to you the Word of God as the church summarizes and confesses this in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30. It's the confession of the church. You can find uh, this on page 545 in the Book of Praise. Page 545, Lord's Day 30. It's the third uh, Lord's Day dealing with Lord's Supper. We'll read that together. Here the church confesses, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all of our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when the church explains what she believes about the truth, it sometimes makes people angry or embarrassed because they don't like the idea of excluding anyone at all. And in a context that we live in today of so much toleration where people believe that anyone and, and everybody should have their own truth and it must be respected by everyone else, it can be difficult to hear a church say that the Lord's Supper is a Christian sacrament that is only for believers and that this Lord's Supper celebration needs to be protected from turning into an accursed idolatry like the Roman Catholic Mass 
and also protected from being invaded by people who do not really love the Lord Jesus at all. We confess and believe that the Lord's Supper is not for people who don't trust in the Lord Jesus. It's not for people who even reject him in their lives. Some people get angry, they get embarrassed by Lord's Day 30 because it makes judgments about what is true and what is not true. And as it does so, it excludes some people from the sacraments. And since Lord's Day 30 is is at the center, actually, of much of this debate, and and even among Reformed churches, it's good to take the principles that have just been expressed, that we just read together, it's good to take the principles expressed in the Lord's Day and then ask one more time, is Lord's Day 30 a human invention that binds our consciences beyond Scripture? Scripture. Is it wrong to believe that there is only one absolute truth and that there is no salvation for those who do not believe that our Lord Jesus Christ has completed his work and he is the only and complete Savior? And a good starting point to evaluate this very question can be found when Jesus was faced with A similar question, a question that's often asked, even perhaps of you, uh, in in, in often a mocking way. They say, Lord, someone asked Jesus, are only a few people going to be saved? Maybe you heard that. Do you really believe that only a few people will be saved? Well, Jesus' answer contains no estimates of numbers. But laying down the requirements of God's word, He says the words that will serve as a theme for the message this afternoon, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. We'll see that this command includes a warning against complacency, and secondly, a call to repentant submission. So we have our Bibles open in Luke 13, that we read together, and we look at this passage in the context And we see that at this time, the Lord Jesus was facing opposition from the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders did not believe that Jesus, the man standing in front of them, was the Son of God, and so they were unwilling to submit to his teaching. They were confident that the Lord would show special favor to the Jewish nation, no matter what they thought of this Jesus, and they trusted that being a Jew... Uh, and, and strictly holding to the law, that that guaranteed their, uh, their inheritance, their eternity in, in heaven. And so in their eyes, uh, they were worthy to enter heaven on the basis of their own works, their own merits. And it's in this context that the Lord Jesus is teaching them. He's speaking to them. And we see that his teaching goes against what they were thinking. And he even asked them, and that was at the beginning of the chapter, he pointed to the Galileans and there was a a tragedy. Many of them uh, died when a tower fell on them. And some people were thinking, well, they must have been really bad sinners if they had that much suffering. And the Lord Jesus points to them and he says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the people who lived so close to the temple in Jerusalem? And his answer, I tell you, no. 
Jesus confronted their complacency. Jesus rebuked their refusal to believe in him. Even though he was on the earth seeking to gather the children of Israel together before the Lord. He warned them straight out in a very clear way that their time was short and that if they did not repent of their their self-righteousness, if they did not repent, they would perish. The Lord Jesus' starting point and also the major emphasis in our passage then is very very clear, not everyone will enter and recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven. That's in verse 29. The Lord Jesus stands at the narrow door as a gatekeeper, as a doorkeeper. And soon, he says, the door to the feast will be shut. In our increasingly tolerant society where everyone is afraid to to say a truth, we're thankful that at least our Lord Jesus made it very clear. We're thankful that the church has the courage to stand and to warn the world the same things that our Lord Jesus warned the world of. Now is the time for repentance and submission to the word of God. And Jesus' warning first comes to the Jews when he says that it may happen that you yourselves are cast out. Imagine that. He says that to these Jews who were keeping the law, who thought they were so righteous, that this man comes who they don't believe, and he says, you need to repent or you will be cast out. Though you might be crying out in your desire to be a part of the feast, though your zeal may be unmatched so that you're proud of yourself, we read in verse 25, the master of the house will answer, I do not know where you come from. The Jewish people were being warned that they cannot assume they will be part of the feast just because of their nationality. Even more, though the Jewish people were, were, were there, they, they, were, they might plead, Jesus, we were, we were there, we ate with you, we, we drank with you, we were right there in, in your presence when you taught in our streets. Jesus warned them that just mere, mere association was not enough. If the Lord Jesus does not know you as one of his sheep, if he does not know you as one of his children throughout your life, that's why the Lord Jesus said, I don't know where you come from. He's pointing to their whole life. If you reject him as Lord and Savior in your life when he is seeking to, to gather you in as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, then the way to the feast is closed. You will hear the voice of the eternal king. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Those are strong words. The Lord Jesus speaking an absolute truth and he does so in great love. And he speaks to everyone who would hear him. And the church today can repeat those words if we have any love for those around us, any love for the world in in which we are placed We will say the same thing if someone comes to church and and, and asks, uh, are only a few going to be saved? 
The church must begin her answer by saying, please realize that the very Savior, Jesus Christ, who came down to earth in love to save this world, that he did not teach that everyone will be saved. Not everyone. The Lord Jesus used a picture of, of many people streaming to participate in a, in a great banquet. And they came to learn that the standards of the kingdom had, there were certain expectations so that not everyone would be allowed to come in. He said that he himself, as the Savior who gave himself to the world, he stands as a, door, a doorkeeper and he will look right into your heart. He will look right into your heart where no one else can see. And just knowing the name Jesus or repeating it a whole bunch of times or boasting that he is your savior with your words, the Lord Jesus said that will not be enough to get you into the banquet for the door will only be open to those who seek Jesus Christ with their whole heart, who love him. In our chapter, the Lord Jesus reminds us that God is, is not harsh He's not shutting the door to anyone who seeks him in humble repentance. But at the same time, God will not be taken for an old fool. And as the eternal judge, and you can read about this very clearly in Romans 2, as eternal judge, he bases his judgment on truth, showing his righteous wrath to those who show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. That's Romans 2, verse 4. That's important to know right now. It's important to know as God's people. It's important to know if you're a visitor here today. There is a coming wrath for those who will not repent. And as we look at Lord's Day 30, then we realize there's a close connection between that feast he was talking about and the Lord's Supper. We believe that at the table of the Lord, we receive a foretaste of the abundant joy which he has promised, and we look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when he will drink the wine new with us in the kingdom of heaven. The only way through the narrow door to the blessings at the promised, that the promised blessings at the table is by faith in Jesus Christ, who was crucified once for all on the cross. It's only when we understand that he does not need to be crucified again and again and again at the, at the hands of a priest. It's when we recognize that he was crucified once and for all, and that he is in heaven, and that he is to be worshipped in heaven. It's when we, we take what the Gospels teach and, and we believe it with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Second, we recognize then that the Lord Jesus is the one who is standing as the gatekeeper. He wants people at his feast who know him. People who may then be strengthened by his body. And not unbelievers or hypocrites who add to their mockery the sin of rejection. Whatever one may think about the confession of the church in Lord's Day 30, you cannot deny that it repeats exactly what our Lord Jesus said when he answers the question, who is to come to the table of the Lord? Who has true fellowship with Christ? 
And the church that knows these things, the church that believes the words of Scripture in Luke 16, will be careful not to stray away from what our Lord Jesus himself said. The only way to the feast is through Jesus Christ. The only way to the feast in heaven is, is through faith in the promise of forgiveness of sins in Christ, the unity of the Spirit in him. There are human limitations that prevent people from looking into the hearts of others, but Christ knows and Christ can see. And Paul warns the church that those who come to the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, the blood of the Lord Jesus, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And before we get distracted by, by others and what others are doing, we need to realize how much each one of us ourselves, how much we need to repent for pride and to trust in Jesus Christ for everything. Without repentance and outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you are outside the kingdom of God. You will not have a seat in the banquet, at the banquet in heaven. And our Lord Jesus, he combines the warning with the instruction in another passage, Matthew 7, verse 11. And there he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Reminds us also what the Lord Jesus taught about the fig tree. The Lord Jesus is looking for, for fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of trust in your lives. It's a very rich blessing, brothers and sisters, that we, sitting here today, before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that we can, we can know exactly what we need to be a part of his body. That we can say that to one another, that we can encourage one another to repent, not just for the sake of repenting, but for the very sake of our salvation, our eternal celebration, the banquet. You see, the command also includes that calling. When the Lord Jesus is warning the Jews about the, their self-sufficiency and their complacency, he's also calling his people to the right path in him. For although he speaks of a narrow door that will soon be closed, he also reminds them that he is looking to gather them under his, under his wings, to gather them together under his care and protection like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. It's a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches them also that many will be seated at their places in the feast of the kingdom, and, uh, at the feast in the kingdom of God. He said people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. That means people will come from all over the world. The promises are not just for the Jewish nation. And then we see the importance of being very clear about what the Lord Jesus says. Isaiah prophesied about the same feast in Isaiah 25. He's speaking about what it will be in the new covenant. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. When the Lord Jesus teaches us not to be complacent or, or to just remain in our lives with our eyes closed and in our sins with our eyes closed, assuming 
there you be a, everyone that God owes it to you to be saved, when he warns against that attitude, he does not want us to think that there will not be room for the full number of God's children who eagerly desire this eternal life with their Father in heaven. So what does the Lord expect of those who will sit at the feast in the kingdom of heaven? Who will be at that feast? What's the difference between those inside the kingdom and outside? What's the, what's the standard that we must use on ourselves when determining whether or not we belong at the Lord's Supper celebration here on earth? On what basis must the elders make a decision about who may come to the table of the Lord? Our confession in Lord's Day 30 is very clear. It depends directly on the instruction of Luke 13 when it teaches us that it does not depend on our own personal merits, our own worthiness. We saw that already last week, that as we came to come to the table, it's actually our most vulnerable moment. It's when we're at our, our weakest time. It's the most embarrassing, we could say, because we're saying nothing on my part, but everything in God's hands. The Lord Jesus asked us here as if they thought that others were worse sinners than they were, and then emphatically revealed to them that if they thought that they were coming to the table, that they were part of the feast because they were better, well, then they were wrong. Look at verse three. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then again in verse five, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Who is worthy to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who is worthy to come to the table of the Lord? The Lord Jesus is very clear. He's looking at the repentant heart. And that's what David said. That's what David confessed. That's what we sang in Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Those are things that we can do. We could think today, you know, all the activity that we do, contrib contributions to the church, our time, our resources. It's not that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. No one is worthy to participate in Christ's work because of what they have done. But if you confess your sins and you humble yourselves before God and you repent, then you will be able. Repentance begins with confession. Confession means you know who you are. It's characterized by a godly sorrow for your sin, not just a, a fear of the consequences, but a, but a sadness that we have offended God himself with our sins. And when we examine ourselves, we need to think about what we have done. So we're examining ourselves, whether we're worthy to participate and, and we want to repent and confess. That's what the Lord Jesus says. What does it look like? Well, you start off thinking about what you have done. Think about the desires that you had or have in your hearts. 
Think about the ways that we hurt others instead of showing love for them. And the Holy Spirit uses the sadness to work new desires into our hearts. He works the sadness into our hearts so that we begin to hate those sins that we committed and to, to seek new life and forgiveness outside of ourselves. We, the Lord, the, through, the Holy, through the sadness, the Holy Spirit helps us to, to start to, to seek to escape God's anger and to be received again into God's favor. And so he allows us to hear the proclamation of the gospel, the, the word of God. We were allowed to hear the, the good side, the wonderful promises that are in God's word. And when we hear the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ who, who came, who died on a cross to, so that we can escape the wrath of God, then we have new desires. We find out that our sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we begin to desire this righteousness. We begin to strengthen our faith and, and amend our lives. And so we, it's clear that repentance is a change of heart followed by a change of mind and a change of actions. When Paul told believers to examine themselves before participating in the celebration of the Lord's Supper in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, which we looked at last week, then he is telling us to examine our relationship to the Lord Jesus. Do you love him first? Do you trust in him enough to tell him everything that you have done, to, to confess to him everything that you have done, even those things that you have done that offend him? That's what confession is all about, and that's not easy, brothers and sisters, because it requires a humility, a recognition of our weakness. Because when we confess our sins truthfully, we are saying that we don't want to be doing that anymore. We actually want to be free from that sin again. And you know what? Often we love the pleasures that sinful activities offer too much to really want to change. Often we have sins in our hearts that are not against our will. There are things that we do not want to give up. Not even if we know it's for the sake of our salvation. See how we love some sins? We'd rather not mention them to the Lord because that means we might have to stop doing them. We even may know that the Lord Jesus will forgive them if we just confess them but we don't want to confess them because then we have to fight against them. So many times we surrender to our sins and not to Jesus Christ. And when we do this, we are not truly displeased with ourselves because of our sin. It's time to take a long, hard look at our lives. That's what examining our lives is all about. And brothers and sisters, even examining and seeing that the difficulty of letting go, seeing that and understanding that as, as a sin, 
It already shows how we are displeased with ourselves for not always being displeased with ourselves. What is our relationship with the Lord Jesus? Are we like the people in Matthew 7, saying, Lord, Lord, but not seeking to do the will of our Father in heaven? When we follow the command of Paul to examine ourselves, when the under-shepherds, the elders, they represent the great gatekeeper, Jesus Christ, and they protect the body of our Lord Jesus Christ from abuse, then the question will always be, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? Do you recognize your sins and unworthiness? Do you believe that Jesus Christ does forgive your sins? That he is there with, with his arms open? That he can save you because he paid for them when he died on a cross already? Do you promise to show your gratefulness for this, this amazing gospel by striving to be a faithful prophet, priest, and king? Brothers and sisters, it's, it's quite easy to tell one another and ourselves to just confess your sins because the Bible says if you confess your sins, the Lord will forgive them. We don't need to hold anything back for ourselves. There is no fuller joy outside of the joy of humbly submitting to Jesus Christ, acknowledging our weakness and receiving the forgiveness, seeing how extensive that grace really is. The Father's arms are open to all those who are washed clean in Jesus Christ. Do not hold anything back from him so that he can purify everything every day again. That's living in grace and not depending on ourselves. In weakness, we cling to the God of Jacob and pray, Lord, bless me. Weakness and confession to Jesus Christ, that's what makes a person worthy before the God who brought salvation through the shameful suffering on the cross. It's in this way that the, the Lord's Supper becomes a meal of great encouragement, great comfort. We exposed ourselves, we showed our, our nakedness, our embarrassment, and he washed us clean in his blood. And the meal comforts us and strengthens us. There's a big difference between going to the Lord's Supper table and going to a meal at your friend's house. When you go to a meal at your friend's house, you figure you deserve to be there. You come as equals. You take out any idea of grace. But in the end, when we have that idea of our Lord's Supper, then we undermine the fullness of the gospel of grace. We show that we don't really understand what Christ has done in our lives. We worship a partial Savior. The Lord's Supper strengthens us in the exact moment when we recognize our sickness, our poverty, and our unworthiness. 
It takes the weakness and it covers it by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that we, each one of us individually, we are declared worthy before God in Christ. We're declared rich. We're declared healthy without measure so we can be lifted up into the presence of Almighty God. In the strength of the gospel proclaimed in the preaching and in the sacraments, we are filled with a great desire to continue to live before God, loving, in a loving and honest and completely transformed relationship. Brothers and sisters, you know how liberating it is to confess your weakness and your need to your Lord and Savior and to receive his provision, his abundant provision. Bread and wine of the sacrament in the preaching of the word and the declaration of our forgiveness of sins. And you know how it changes you. And you want to produce that fruit of repentance and faith. That fruit that Paul thanked the Lord for when he looked at the Thessalonian church in the first chapter of the first letter. At the end of the day, people who pass through the narrow door are the people who are producing the fruit of repentance. The weak, the failing, the undeserving, and the unworthy who confess their sins will also hear the call of their Savior on the day of the feast. Come and enter. Do not lose heart, brothers and sisters, for you serve an amazing, and a gracious, and a powerful God. One day, many, many years ago, someone came up to the Lord Jesus and said, will the saved be few? And Jesus turns the question to will you be among the saved? Jesus warns us that not everyone who thinks they will be entering the feast will be there. Jesus utters judgment against those who live their lives in their denial of their real need for Christ so that they remain in their complacency. But he tells them you will be rescued from death through repentance. And he calls all men to humble themselves before him in, in their eager desire for the new life that he grants them. Will the saved be few? Will you be among those humble and repentant believers. We're not told how many will be saved, but we are told one thing. You make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Do this by putting all your trust in the gatekeeper, Jesus Christ, who has already paid for all your sins, sins of all who believe in him, the sins of all those who confess their sins. When you come to the table and you participate in Christ's sacrifice by eating of his body by faith, you can be reminded and assured that he is the way and the truth and the life. And he has given his life for all who believe in him. Amen. At the end of our chapter, we, Luke 13, it says, Behold, your house is forsaken and I will tell you you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is what we sing 
Psalm 118, stanza 6, 7, and 8. That's where the quotation comes from. Blessed uh, is the Lord who comes to us. Psalm 118, stanza 6, 7, and 8. We'll sing that psalm standing if you're able to stand. 